now we want to just kind of turn to the Word of God. And I want to ask you a question, all right? In fact, I have a couple of questions for you. I want you to be honest. Just kind of just wave at me if this applies to you. Have you ever uh, been stopped by a policeman for a traffic infraction? Can I just see your hands? Ever been stopped? Yeah. Good driver saved 40%, by the way. Uh, that's the thing that's stuck in my head. But anyway, uh, it happened to me about seven years ago. I was coming back. I was, I was riding on the LIE. I was coming back from visiting one of our members in Nassau uh, County Hospital. And uh, I uh, got pulled over for changing lanes without uh, signaling. Full, full disclosure, I am guilty. <laughs> I did it. Uh, and I, it's a bad habit that I do have, unfortunately. Uh, so, so, you know, at that moment, you know, what, what, what could I do? I, I, I started to act really well. You know, I, started, I was on my good behavior. I pulled over to the right as far as humanly possible so that the police officer, when he came to my window or car, that, that he would be safe. You know, I shut off the ignition. I put the keys on the dashboard, which is a sign of kind of like I'm cooperating with you. I'm, I'm submitting. I put both my hands on the steering wheel so he knows what my intentions are. And I got to tell you something. For all my good behavior, I still couldn't get out of trouble. <laughs> I still got a ticket. Uh, how many of you ever, now, let me, this, this is the next question. How many of you ever played Monopoly? You know, sure, everybody's played Monopoly, right? Uh, I used to love it when, when I was able to draw the card uh, that showed that little guy with wings on his back, as far as I can remember, uh, which is a free get-out-of-jail card. You know, wasn't that great? Uh, I, w- wouldn't it be great if there was a card that could be given to us that we can get out of trouble? You know, but, but imagine even better than that. Imagine if it was issued to us from heaven. A heavenly, free, get-out-of-trouble card. Now, to be honest with you, responding appropriately when we've been caught doing something wrong is not always easy, but it really is the best thing to do because a lot of times in the attempt to cover over a wrongdoing that we've done, we actually create a greater crime in in the cover-up. The tendency for us to kind of make excuses or to shift blame on somebody else, like, like for instance, <laughs> it's that lady's fault that was in the hospital that went to visit, you know. Uh, that making excuses, that kind of blame shifting comes really natural to us. We kind of inherited that from Adam and Eve who threw each other under the bus and made excuses for their bad behavior. I read the story of a 14-year-old boy who actually robbed or stole a Jeep and uh, was driving out of this person's uh, area. And the person who owned the vehicle, who had left their keys in the car, uh, saw what was going on, called the police, and the police gave chase. And uh, this this kid actually caused the highway to be closed down for hours because he hits another car, rolls over, and and actually, you know, just creates this havoc upon upon the, the highway there. And uh, he, he survived some serious injuries, but the worst of it all was, was this boy's mom. And this, and this is what, what she said. M- my son was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was a crime of opportunity 
that wouldn't have happened if the keys weren't left in the car. My son simply, you know, saw the opportunity and he took it. Doesn't the owner bear some responsibility for leaving his keys in the car? That, I think that's kind of blame shifting, don't you? Uh, making excuses for her son's bad behavior. Uh, some years ago, a boxer by the name of Ray Mancini in a boxing match actually killed his opponent. And the next day when there was a news conference to discuss the tragic uh, death of his opponent, this is what Mancini said. He said, sometimes I wonder why God does the things that he does. So how, how is that God's fault? How is God to blame? Listen, it is a foolish thing to, to shift blame and to, and, and to make excuses, but it's something extra wicked when we try to blame God for the wrong things that we have done. Uh, I read about a young man by the name of Anthony Stewart, 15 years of age, who received, excuse me, two to six years in a juvenile detention facility for armed robbery. And uh, what he did was he used the BB gun to hold up an old man and he knocked the old man to the ground and then rummaged through his pockets. And, and this is what he got, two pennies and a nickel. Seven cents. And he's sentenced to two to six years in a juvenile facility. And the judge said, the reason why you're receiving a harsh sentence is not only because of what you've done, but because you refuse to admit it. You wanted to fight the charges. And a jury found him guilty of first-degree robbery. And he says, and mostly it was because of your lack of repentance and a lack of remorse for what you did. You were eyewitnessed by, by several people, and yet you still deny that you were responsible for that crime, and therefore it's going to cost you. I don't know, but the judge probably read the book of Proverbs and the wisdom that comes from Proverbs. In Proverbs 28, verse 13, it says this, whoever conceals their sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes then we'll find mercy. That there's wisdom in, in just being honest and confessing your wrongdoing and then turning away from the wrongdoing that you've done. See, God is infinitely merciful. His mercy endures forever. His wrath abides but for a moment, but his, his mercy endures forever. I, I, I love the, the songs by Shane and Shane, and one of the songs that I love, I can just listen to it over and over again, is a song called His Mercy is More. And one of the lines says this, stronger than darkness, new every morning, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. His mercy is more than our sinfulness. And because his mercy endures forever, he offers mercy to those who make confession and repentance of their wrongdoing. See, it's the kindness of God, the Bible says, that leads us to repentance. It's not that someday we just have this great idea. You know what? I'm going to turn away from, from my sins and I'm going to turn toward God. No, no, no. It is the kindness of God that leads us step by step toward repentance. If you make excuses, however, it will cost you. And uh, you trust in Jesus Christ. He bears the cost. He pays the price in full. The only blame shifting that's permissible in God's sight is the blame that God the Father has laid upon his son, the iniquity of us all. And that is acceptable to God the Father. 
you know, this new life that we have in Christ, it begins with confession and repentance. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm thankful that you're here. If you're listening to it on the stream, thank you for listening. And what I want you to know is that God has provided a way of escape from the consequences of our sins, which is basically called condemnation. This, this, this idea of being condemned because of the wrong things that we have done. I want you to know that, that we do have a free get out of trouble card. It's not written with pen and ink. It's written in the blood of Jesus Christ, God's beloved son. It's free to us, but it's extremely costly to him. He suffered what is, I like to call it, tatamount, or what is equivalent to eternal death. And that's hard for anyone to really wrap their minds around. But Jesus endured that all. We did the crime. He paid the price. Jesus, Jesus frees us from having to stand trial and being punished. But he stood trial and he was condemned on our behalf and for us. You know, there was a study in a university in Connecticut about cardiac patients who suffered a heart attack. And that they discovered this, that those patients who made excuses for themselves and kind of blamed you know, on stress or blamed it on individuals in their lives, that they had a recurrence of a second heart attack within a couple of years. But the opposite was also true, that those who were grateful and thankful and appreciative of life had a much fewer or, or much reduced rate of ever having a second heart attack. The application is really simple. To blame shift or to make excuses is really self-destructive. Christians who follow Jesus Christ get a free get out of trouble card. No condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And we're going to look at that scripture in a minute. But the word, I want you to think about the word condemnation for a minute. There's probably no other word that is more hope-killing, uh, discouraging, uh, fearful than the idea of condemnation. I want you to think about that. A building that's condemned is slated for destruction. It's, it's uninhabitable. It's, it's, it's of no value any longer except to be destroyed. Now, a building that is destroyed was, once had some value to it is a loss of something, right? It's a loss of some value. But a human being slated for destruction is beyond our ability to comprehend. And yet it's against this backdrop that the work of Jesus Christ is so brilliantly displayed. In Romans chapter 7, it describes our common, even those of us who are, who are following Jesus for many years, our, our common struggle with temptation and the struggle with, with, with sinfulness or sinful tendencies. We discovered that in Romans chapter 7, that there is a weakness from which we cannot break this spiritual bondage. I call it this mandatory principle of indwelling sin. Paul said, when I would do good, I find that there is evil present with me. That in my flesh there is no good thing. That as a result of that, Paul says, I want to do what's good and what's right, but I find that there's a principle at work in me, and, and I don't do the things that I do, and I do the things that I don't want to do. This frustration that, that you may have experienced, even though you've been walking with Christ for a long time, you know, th that is a common experience. But, but we're to know that in ourselves, we can do nothing. 
But there is a way for us. There is an, a way for us to escape. Uh, and so the question is, is there ever going to be any personal victory over the, the wicked one? Will we ever know freedom? Will we ever know this desire that I believe is in every true child of God? Freedom from the power of sin? Freedom from the penalty of sin? Freedom from the very presence of sin is, is a desire. And Paul cries out this common uh, cry for each of us who've gone through this experience of frustration when we want to do right, but we find that, that it's so hard sometimes in ourselves to do right. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. It's a cry of the heart. And, and maybe you've, you, you've not realized, but you've cried this out to God as well. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this corpse I am chained to? And, and the illustration there that Paul uses in the first century is something that they would have been very familiar with, that they would take a prisoner who was condemned to death and they would chain that prisoner to a, a putrefying corpse, another human being that's already begun to decay and rot, and eventually that would cause the death of that other prisoner as well. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me, one translation says, from this body of death? You know, I, I think of the word wretched. You know, I, I, I think of the word wretched in, in the word uh, amazing grace, the song by, by, that was made infamous or, or famous, I should say, by uh, John Newton. Uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, who saved the wretch like me. And John saw himself in that capacity as Paul speaks about here, a wretched man that I am. You know, I, I, I love... The song Amazing Grace, but I love even more. One of the last things that John Newton said when he was, you know, just days before he passed away, he said, there are many things I no longer remember, but I remember two things very clearly. Number one, I'm a great sinner. Number two, Christ is a great Savior. Greater than our sins is his mercy. And then Paul says this. He says, thanks be to God. For the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in other words, there is a way of escape from this wretched person that I am. Therefore, thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse one of chapter eight is the begins with the word therefore. Uh, the word therefore, when you see that word therefore, find out what's it there for. Right? Very simple. It's like it's like the columns of numbers, and you draw a line at the end of those those numbers, and it is the sum of, that, that line says, this is the sum then of what Paul is saying. And this is what he's saying, that, that because of Jesus Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We will, we will not be condemned. And, and, and the, the key is that little phrase right there, in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, not now, not a year from now, not not. 10 years from now, not in eternity, there will never be condemnation for those who are safely in Christ Jesus. That, my friend, is better than a free get-out-of-trouble card because this is permanent. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the cup that was set before Jesus is the cup of the wrath of God and that experience of eternal death, what it means to be separated from God, and, and Jesus sweat great drops of blood. But I want you to know, he did not sip that cup begrudgingly. 
He did not pass on that cup either. No, he drank that cup in full and he turned the cup upside down. And that means because of what he endured for us, there is now therefore no condemnation. Intense pain, misery, and suffering to him becomes release, joy, and eternal life to us. That little phrase, in Christ Jesus, did you know that that appears about a hundred times in the New Testament? And it has so many good things associated with it, like this word, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But it says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. That we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And there are so many others that I can't look at this morning. But what I want you to know is, is this idea of being in Christ. And, and, and think, of the, think of the illustration of Noah, who is shut up in the ark by God himself who seals the ark with, with himself and the other members of his family. And then the rains begin to come and the, and the waters from the great deep begins to break open. And there is a storm like has never been before. And every living thing is, is killed upon the earth except for those that were in the ark. The, the judgment of God fell upon the ark, but not upon the people who were safely in Christ, in the ark. And that is how Jesus saves us from the awful judgment that will ultimately come and end in unspeakable misery. Now, I, I want to share a quote with you from uh, a great teacher by the name of um, Sam Storms. And this is, where, this is where the message kicks into practicality. It, doctrinally, it's important what we've looked at so far, but here is where this message really becomes so, so useful to me and to you as followers of Jesus Christ. This is what he says. He says, it is only as we think about, reflect, and meditate on the glorious fact that because of his death, we will never, ever be condemned, that we will find three things, the power the incentive and the desire to live as if we're already dead to sin and, and temptation. Somebody who is already dead to sin and temptation, somebody who's already dead can't be tempted. Somebody who's already dead can't commit, continue to commit sin because they are dead, but they've been raised together with Christ Jesus. I want you to see the practicality of this this morning. The power, the incentive, and the desire to live as if we were dead to sin but alive to God comes from knowing that there's now no condemnation. Not now, not ever. Therefore, listen, our greatest weapon against temptation to sin is the knowledge that all my sins have been paid for in full. That sets me free. It was for freedom that Christ has set me free. The passionate work of Jesus Christ crucified rescues us from divine wrath. And that's the foundation of our freedom, that we can walk in freedom. That we can, in other words, we can enjoy God rather than dread God because the issue of condemnation and judgment is already decided. He has spoken no condemnation over my life, over your life. Let that sink in for a minute. Especially, especially if you're a new believer in Jesus and you've just started walking maybe a few weeks, a few months in Christ. And, and, and listen, I remember what it was like. 
you know, so almost 50 years ago. I remember what it was like to, to, to be new in Christ and, and to realize, I, you know, I'm just going to live for God. And then, and then you find out during the week, you just, you just fall and you stumble and, 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 and you can't conquer what you, what you thought you could, you thought you were so strong that you could just resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But, but you discovered that in yourself, that you are weak, that, that in yourself you can do nothing. But the realization then that you are in Christ, that knowledge, that understanding as you begin to walk in that and mature and that, that there's no condemnation, that that is the truth that begins to set you free from the power of temptation. You see, what I want you to know is this, that, that those who, who live with this sense of condemnation really uh, begin to despair uh, of, of all hope of ever being free. You see, condemnation actually strengthens the power of sin. Let me say that again. Condemnation, feelings of guilt and shame and condemnation actually strengthen the power of sin. Why? Because the pressure that condemnation carries creates feelings of shame and guilt and the fear of judgment that leads to hopelessness. And that hopelessness becomes unbearable and that leads to two things. It leads to self-pity and self-indulgence. You figure, oh, what, what, what the heck, I, I, I'm, already, I'm already lost. I might as well just continue. No, no, no. You don't understand. And therefore, because you don't understand, you don't have the freedom to walk in. Nothing paralyzes more powerfully as guilt, shame, and condemnation. Nothing makes life for an individual more miserable as living with this cloud of condemnation over your heart, your head, your life. Sin's only defeated when we realize that another has stepped in our place and he has broken the power of sin because he's paid the penalty for our sins and that we're forever forgiven. That we have a Savior who has taken the record of our sins and he's nailed them to his cross. That's what the scripture says. And that realization empowers it energizes, it incentivizes us so that we will now walk in newness of life, in gratitude to the Savior for what he's done for us. Like those heart attack patients who have a, have a sense of gratefulness that they're alive and, and thankful that, that, that they don't succumb to another heart attack. That we now have this sense of gratitude. We're thankful. Thanks be unto God for the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul is not saying that Christians are free from condemnation because of their good behavior. Christians are not free from, from, from condemnation because they're sincere or because they're committed to following Jesus. No, there's only one reason why there's no condemnation, because Jesus was condemned in our place. One of the most poignant stories uh, that reveal th this whole idea of condemnation and how it works and, and, and how Jesus can apply that to our lives is found in the Gospel of John. Uh, maybe a quicker uh, illustration would be the thief who said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded immediately and said, today you shall be with me in paradise. No condemnation for that man. But there's, a, there's even a more poignant story found in the Gospel of John and it has to do with Jesus and an unnamed woman. And the unnamed woman is caught 
in the act of adultery. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they bring her to Jesus and they say, there's a law in Moses that says she should be put to death. But what do you say, Jesus? What is your opinion? You see, this was just a ruse. This was just an attempt to bring Jesus down, to, to entrap Jesus in some kind of unrighteousness and have someone to accuse him of. The Pharisees didn't, didn't give a hoot about this woman, whatever a hoot is. I don't know what a hoot is. They didn't care about the law, you know. They just, they hated Jesus. And one of the reasons why they hated Jesus so much was because, you know, they're the elites, but, but Jesus was, was rubbing shoulders with the common people. Jesus, Jesus was attracting publicans and sinners. And in fact, the Pharisees and scribes gave Jesus what they thought was a slurred name that he's the friend of publicans and sinners. But that just made publicans and sinners even more comfortable with Jesus because they knew that he wouldn't reject them and they would come to Jesus as a result of that. You see, the the tension here that exists is that Jesus has gone on record as saying, Son of God was not sent to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I've come to seek and save the lost, is what Jesus had said and taught in his in his preaching. On the other hand, Jesus said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets because I have not come to destroy the law, but rather to fulfill it. And so the Pharisees described, they, they, they thought themselves, oh, we're, so, we're so, so smart. We've got Jesus now between a rock and a hard place because if he says, you know, if, if we say to him, what, is, what do you say? And he says, let her go. They would accuse him of dishonoring the law and also of being soft on sin. On the other hand, if they said to Jesus, you know, well, what do you say? And he said, go ahead, stoner. They would accuse him of flip-flopping and, and, and denying his so-called mission to seek and save the lost. So what does Jesus do? He kneels down and he begins to write on the ground. What is he writing? I have no idea what he was writing. But he's writing with his finger upon the ground. And, and I don't, maybe he's writing thief, jealousy, pride. Maybe he's writing something that he knows that the men that are standing around him may be guilty of. See, Jesus knew what was in men's hearts. But he doesn't answer them, making as if he doesn't hear them. And so they press him, Jesus, what do you say? What, 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 what should we do? And then with One sentence, Jesus disarms his enemies, embarrasses them all, and with one sentence, he diffuses the whole situation because he is the wisdom of God. He says, all right, let the one who's without sin, you cast the first stone. You know the story. And and from the oldest to the youngest, convicted, they... They're gone. They walk away. And Jesus is left alone with this woman who's obviously embarrassed and, and obviously frightened by this whole situation because her life is online. By the way, do you ever wonder where's the man? How, how come? I mean, you takes, it takes a man and a woman to, to commit adultery. Where's the man? Was he in on the ruse, which is, my, which is, my, which is what I suspect, that he was a part of the setup for this whole thing? 
And so there's nobody there except, except the woman and Jesus. And he says to her, woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one to condemn you? And she says, no, Lord, none. He says, neither will I condemn you. Go. Don't sin anymore. He fulfills his mission to seek and save the lost. Yet he also honors the law because the law required two eyewitnesses before any accusation could be established. And since there were no eyewitnesses, the law was now powerless to inflict punishment upon this lady. And Jesus says, go and don't sin anymore. Listen, that's that's not good advice. Jesus has the words of life. People who had an encounter with Jesus had transformation take place in their their lives. Zarkeus, transformation takes place. The woman at the well in Samaria, transformation took place. And when Jesus has an encounter with you and with me, there's transformation that takes place in our lives. And besides, in a few short days from this event, Jesus would be standing in the same place. The same Jewish leaders would be there. Now, this time, they're accusing him of blasphemy. And Jesus answered, not a word. Just as the scripture says, like a lamb led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. And Jesus is condemned in this very place where he bears her condemnation nation as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mission impossible, mission accomplished. We get the free get out of condemnation card. We'll close with a story about a, a woman who was uh, named Rebecca. Excuse me. She was visiting her dad who lived in Boston. She was from another city. And uh, it was his birthday, so she came for the day to celebrate, and she decided to go for a run around a local reservoir. And as as she was running, she noticed the stroller that was rolling backward toward the reservoir. There there were two ladies who were turned the other way, and they were, you know, engaged in conversation, distracted or whatever. And And that stroller with two babies, two years old and four years old, rolled down an embankment 10 foot down and fell into the water, the, 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 the carriage turned upside down. Those babies were face down in the water. Rebecca didn't think twice about what to do. She jumped into that water to rescue those two babies. See, coincidentally, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, because she used to be a lifeguard. So she, was un- she experienced stressful situations like this, and she knew exactly what to do. And like the hero that she was, she saved those two babies. A policeman on the scene said it best. And this is what, and this is what he said. He says, I think God had a plan to rescue those babies, which is why Rebecca was in Boston today. She was in Boston today <laughs> for that very reason. Folks, God had a plan to rescue you, to rescue me from drowning in condemnation, guilt, and shame. God sent his son who didn't think twice about jumping into the reservoir of human misery and suffering and pain. Pulled off the greatest rescue of all time. Think about that. 
So let me just kind of recap here for a minute. That there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that our lives have been, have been sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. That our lives have been hid with Christ in God. With Christ in God. See, God wants you to live guilt-free and condemnation-free because there's nothing that paralyzes more than living under the cloud of condemnation. And condemnation actually strengthens the power of sin because it leads to hopelessness, self-pity, and self-indulgence. But knowing that I am already free from condemnation is the, the incentive, it, it is the, the power to set me free. So some of them might ask, you know, at this point in the message, maybe, maybe this is the first time you've heard the gospel. Why? Why would God do this? For human beings who are so flawed and who are so frail and weak within themselves, why would God do this in the first place? It's, it's, you could say it's a mystery in some ways. Did you know that God, who from eternity... Uh, the perfect community, Father, Son, and Spirit, was under no, no compulsion, no necessity to create a universe. There was nothing missing in his existence that required him to create in order to fulfill him. He was already perfect, already fulfilled. So th th there's something about God in some moment in eternity, and in, in, in trying to figure that out is make your brain crazy, but somehow God decided to create a universe and then to put man perhaps at the very center of the universe, knowing that he would fall, and yet God had a plan of redemption. Why would he do that? I don't know, maybe because of love, maybe because God, the Bible says that God is love, and maybe to express his love. All right, but his love really isn't expressed unless you have eyes to see it in creation. But there's something beyond creation in which the love of God is revealed. And look at what John, the apostle says in 1 John 3.16. Here is the way we perceive that we know the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. He didn't have to. He didn't have to create he did create, and he did provide a plan by which we can escape. And if you're here this morning, I hope that you never lose, and if you are a father, that you will never lose the awe and the wonder and the splendor of what it means to be called by name. And God chooses you. He calls you out of darkness, and he translates you into his the kingdom of his love. Never lose the awe of that. Never, never let life get so, so confused with discouragement or things that, that, that cause depression. Don't ever let anything blur the greatest gift that God has given you, the gift of his son. I'm telling you, with that in mind, you can overcome anything. Now, I want to just pray that that would just really take root in our hearts, that we would really just walk with no condemnation in our hearts and in our lives. But, but if you're here this morning and you never received Jesus or you're watching online and you've never received Jesus, this 
new life begins with two things. I said it before, confession and repentance. We confess, Lord, I'm sorry I've sinned against you. And we repent. We turn away from what we were to God. So if you're here this morning and you're watching and you'd like to do that, can I just lead you in a, in a prayer? And I always say this, it's not magical words that bring us into a relationship with God. It's the heart that is opened by faith. And faith, the Bible says, is the gift of God. And so I just pray this now as, as you would pray along with me. Jesus, I pray that you would forgive me of all my sins, cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I pray, Jesus, that you now would give me eternal life, seal me with the Holy Spirit of promise. I believe that you are the Son of God, that you rose again from the dead, and I confess you now as my Lord and my Savior. Now, Father, I pray for everyone now that's here and those that are your children that are that are maybe struggling with temptation or struggling with a, a, a sin consciousness. I pray that they would be uh, turned toward a Christ consciousness, a no condemnation awareness, that they would begin to walk in the freedom that is in Christ Jesus. And we thank you this morning for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.